0: FBS With More ships for the Royal Navy, more cuts for the Royal Navy. Here we go again.
1: You've seen the Queen Elizabeth arrive in Portsmouth. This week we'll be naming the second carrier, Prince of Wales. We're building new submarines, offshore patrol vessels. This year, 2017, there's clearly not enough money for the armed
2: forces to do the things that they need to do to be ready.
0: The Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon has unveiled a new shipbuilding strategy. Britain is to buy at least five new frigates with construction shared between shipyards across the UK. The first batch will be in service by 2023. Here's Sir Michael talking to Forces News reporter Simon Elliott.
1: We're growing the Royal Navy now. You've seen the Queen Elizabeth arrive in Portsmouth. This week we'll be naming the second carrier, Prince of Wales. We're building new submarines, offshore patrol vessels. Back in July, I cut steel on the first of the heavy-duty frigates, the anti-submarine frigates, up on the Clyde. And today, another great day for the Royal Navy, I'm announcing how we're going to build the five lighter frigates that will be added to the fleet. So we have a growing Royal Navy. Taking on board Sir John Parker's recommendations for the national shipbuilding strategy, is it an acknowledgement that focusing so much on the two new carriers was the wrong way to go? No, what he's picked up on is that previous ship procurement, the way we've ordered warships in this country, we've ended up with ships that have been too expensive, that have been uh, uh, over schedule, they've been late, and um, that has caused us uh, problems. We're setting out today an entirely new approach. We're putting an upper limit on the cost per ship and challenging the shipyards of Britain as to whether or not they can meet it. So this is a new approach which we hope will give us warships to budget and on time. Your former colleague Mark Francois this week highlighted low recruitment levels across all forces. Um, With the Royal Navy 10% down on annual recruitment targets, why are you confident you'll have enough sailors to crew these vessels when they come in over the next 10 to 15 years? Well, the Royal Navy is 96% uh, recruited, um, and the other two services are the same. They've got they, they have a few uh, a few gaps, but uh, over 95% uh, recruited. We're spending a lot of money, 200 million a year, on recruitment. But the armed forces are competing in a a growing economy with very low unemployment, the lowest for 40 years. The armed forces are competing with everybody else for uh, people of the right skills. But uh, overall, we're going to grow the size of the Navy. We're adding 400 posts to the Navy. That was agreed back in the 2015 review. So we're going to go on recruiting. Do you think uh, spending on ships uh, in the modern world, given the needs of cybersecurity, is the right way to go? Would we be better, be better spending big money on other projects? Well, we have to spend money on both now. What we've learned over the last few years is that we have to be ready for all kinds of threats, increased Russian aggression, dash terrorism in the Middle East, instability now in Asia Pacific. So we need to strengthen our forces across the board, nuclear, conventional, and these new areas like cyber. But what we've learnt above all is you need presence around the globe. And an expanding Royal Navy with new frigates will give us that.
0: That was the Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon. So will this mean a bigger Royal Navy plus a boost to the economy when the orders come rolling in from the rest of the world or has that ship sailed? I'm joined by naval historian Professor Eric Grove and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Um, Eric, this strategy draws on recommendations by Sir John Parker who wrote a review of British shipbuilding published last November. Is it the answer?
3: Well, I think it's encouraging that we are... <laughs> Ordering or, ordering the type the the uh, the type 31s, um, and I think uh, trying to sort of spread the spread the load among shipbuilders. The carrier program actually has been extremely good. Uh, I'm in Liverpool at the moment, and just over the Mersey is, is Camel Lairds, and they will be I think thinking of of, of tendering for the new frigates. Uh, th- th- there was a lot of investment there as part of the carrier of the of the carrier program. Uh, other yards too, A M P on the on the Tyne, um, and so I think fostering this 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 capacity in England uh, particularly as the future of Scotland is perhaps less doubtful than it was but you still have to think of the Scottish factor is probably prudent and I think it may well achieve I, well, one hopes it does and certainly the government does uh, a cheaper frigate in the end
0: mm-hmm. Cheaper frigate. Uh, Christopher, he did say that he wants a price cap on these Type 31s and he's got a demanding timescale is that realistic?
4: Yeah, yeah, it is. it is. If you don't think of it as first 11 ships A lot of criticism comes from the whole concept of the Type 31 is that you expect it to turn up very quickly uh, and that it's got a very basic design and it's not fitted out as, let's say, other vessels might be. But we don't want or we're not ordering more Type uh, 45s. We're not ordering my, uh, more Type 26. We're war- ordering workhorses. You go back to, for example, when I think it was Vosper Thornycroft uh, Eric built. Is it the Type 21? That's it? right. Yes, ones Yeah, which PA were class. really good. The Amazon class. That's right. Which which were really good workaday vessels and did a tremendous amount of work. Now that's what you've got to think about in the in in a modern navy. You don't just build the best there is. Mm. This story really starts. If you, if you think about it, in 2010, this whole thing uh, of of the SDSR then, if you remember, when all the naval cuts were f- sort of front-loaded, Ark Royal, you know, 2011 went. Uh, the turbulent paid off in 2012, replaced by ambush. In other words, you, you pay stuff off. So when you see stories about, oh, well, uh, helicopters are going and vessels are going, although I don't think they should cut MCMVs, et cetera, you replace them by better vessels. There is one question, though, Above all on this, which really starts with that SDSR in in 2010, and it is a continuous story. Afterwards, only seven, eight years ago, is that if the Royal Navy were having to take the decision about future naval
3: requirements now. Would they have built the carriers? They'd have liked them, of course. Do you think they would, Eric? I think they would have done, yes, because the carriers are very useful. Mm. You can't depend. You can't depend on the United States anymore. If you look at the deployment of American carriers, mm. there are only two at sea at the moment, and one of them is a, is a Ronald Reagan in the in in Japanese waters, not you know not very far from home. That picture that was published recently of Queen Elizabeth side by side with the American carrier that is pop, that is probably going to be the, you know the shape of things to come
0: are you feeling quite positive then Eric about the Royal Navy at the moment
3: pretty much so yes I think I think the Manning problem is serious I've been engaged in he doesn't some...
0: seem to think so this defense secretary does he that's he right
3: well the Navy is trying to make itself more attractive I was involved myself in a study on that among uh, among other first sea Lords fellows and 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 the Navy is trying to do better in retention and this kind of thing and making itself more uh, uh more attractive. But with this stuff about cutting training and this kind of thing, we must be very careful not to have what the Americans call a hollow force. Mm. It's all very well having ships in service, but if the crews aren't trained, we're in big trouble.
0: Meanwhile, a report in The Times today says the MOD will be making more savings. According to the paper, a range of moves is being considered, including delaying some of the orders for the F-35 aircraft, reducing the numbers of troops going for battlefield training in Canada and Kenya, as well as removing mine hunter vessels from the Royal Navy and links helicopters used by special forces. I spoke to General Sir Richard Barron, who until last year was Commander Joint Forces Command. He's calling for a national debate on the state of the armed forces.
2: There are really two serious problems that Defence is grappling with today, and most people in the armed forces are very, aware, very well aware of this. The first is... This year, 2017, there's clearly not enough money for the armed forces to do the things that they need to do to be ready. So they are talking about trimming, training and readiness and expenditure on things like infrastructure, I guess. And the second thing that we know to be true is the armed forces are being invited by government to look again at the 10-year programme and according to the Permanent undersecretary of State, to remove £20 billion over the 10-year programme. That's about 5.5% at, uh, at today's prices. So that means that Defence hasn't got enough money to do the things that were decided upon, even in the 2015 Defence Review. So we have both a short-term and a long-term problem. But the key thing is... We must look at this in the context of a series of cuts that have occurred, frankly, since 1989 and the end of the Cold War. So it's not as if we're looking at these cuts from a particularly good place. They are just the latest round in a cycle of trying to get defence to do uh, what they are required to do with less money and the effect on training, readiness the condition of the estate, the size of the equipment fleet, the number of people that can be hired over time means that the armed forces are getting smaller and weaker. And really, really, that wouldn't matter, would it, if the world was the same as it was in 1990. But everybody who reads the newspapers or looks at television and sees the world as it's turning out must be concerned that the world that we now live in and are going to live in uh, is much more perilous than the world... Uh, of the immediate post-Cold War period, Uh, whether that's a difficult relationship with Russia, the drama that's unfolding with North Korea, the perils in the Gulf, the drama in Africa... Genuinely, there are risks to our national security in terms of the capability that others now have Mm. and and to our interests abroad as part of a globalised world.
0: And yet you see the prime minister when she launches the new aircraft aircraft carrier saying that this is proof that Britain is projecting influence and and is investing in defence.
2: Well, it's a very optimistic message. And and of course, uh, no one would deny this government has decided to increase defence expenditure at at about half a percent above inflation every year until 2022. That is a good thing. But as today's story reveals, that's not even holding the line. And yes, the Queen Elizabeth Carriers are. Very impressive platforms with enormous capability, but they're not complete. The aircraft don't arrive for a number of years, and when they do, they're going to be in very small numbers. And many of the things the Royal Navy knows that it needs to deliver a properly powerful carrier group it can't afford. So, mm. to some degree, there's a very positive message, but, my goodness, there's some shortfalls behind the rhetoric.
0: I mentioned earlier that you retired last year, and this week there has been a report about problems, serious problems of recruitment to the armed forces. If you were starting out again, would you join when you portray the armed forces as you just have? Of course
2: I'd join. As, as a vocation, I think it's, it's second to none. And for a young man or woman... Uh, who uh, wants to try something different, who truly feels they want a role uh, in protecting their their country, their families and their society, what better place is there to be than the armed forces? What I would worry about, though, is committing, uh, if you're, say, 18 or 19 to a full career, I would want to know that someone is going to get a grip of the current holographic status of uh, UK defence.
0: You've called for a serious debate. You described the armed forces as smaller and weaker. What do you think needs to happen exactly?
2: Well, I I understand how difficult this is for for government, for parliament, for ministers, for the service chiefs, for academia and society generally, because, as I've said, nobody feels threatened in in 2017 because we've had the luxury of a very comfortable ride since the end of the Cold War. But we have to be honest and look at the world as it's turning out, look at the state of defence and come to, a, I think, uh, a set of very clear decisions that what we have now is not enough to protect our our interests in in this more difficult world. And all I would like to see is a genuinely rich, profound, considered and durable debate with all of those actors that lays this out and then comes to some, I think, very difficult and potentially expensive decisions that in the world as it is, we're going to have to do defence better, even though we've got to do things like Brexit.
0: Well, that was General Sir Richard Barron speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher Lee and Professor Eric Grove were listening to that. I'm sure you both have a lot to say about that. But first of all, let's hear what the MOD have said in the statement. They say, in the face of intensifying threats, we're looking at how we best spend a rising defence budget to support our national security. Christopher, over to you first.
4: I couldn't have written that better myself, honestly. <laughs> Which bit? <laughs> MOD's response. You'd think they'd be better at it by now, wouldn't you? Listen, um, if you go back, you know, I was saying earlier, you, you go back to 2010, 2012, when this, this whole thing began, it was about the same time that the Americans started talking to their closest allies, first to the British, about something called air-sea battle uh, systems. And it was a philosophy of what you do in the future, because between 1990, let's say that's when communism finished, and around about the beginning of this century, the Americans and the British, to some extent, could go wherever they liked. They could more or less put troops wherever they liked. They could put ship deployments, etc. And then, in this century, that started to change and so thinking started to change and what you could do with what you got. As Eric was saying earlier, they're the Americans with some like mm. thirteen carriers, they've only got two running. And so they came up with this concept of cross domain synergy. In other words, you do everybody does things together. We're not seeing as the general seems to think, we're not seeing a a carrier battle group going off to protect British interests. Mm. The carrier battle group will be part of something which is trying to maintain the idea of world government, Er a balance or whatever.
0: Eric Grove, there are two kinds of rhetoric you seem to get when when you hear about... How well defence is doing, and investment and cuts, etc. You have the rising defence budget you hear from the MOD, and then you have people like General Barons talking about having to do what's required with less money. What is the truth?
3: Well, the budget is rising, but it's not enough. And if serious cuts are going to be made, and I was very worried about delays in the F thirty five program. I mean, in the short term, our carrier is going to be carrying. But large the
0: point is, they will still get those F thirty five in the long run. Yes.
3: Eventually, yes, but uh, but but it will mean perhaps that the uh, that the carrier will continue to have a combined air group well into the 2020s a combined British and American one also mine countermeasures with Russia on the march perhaps and Baltic operations becoming increasingly likely to do away with one's MCM capability does not seem wise at all there are there are well, nearing the end of their, their lives,
0: anyway, the mine hunters. Oh, the
3: mine, mine hunters tend to have quite a long life, uh, and there was talk of re-engineing them. In fact, I remember when there was, well, you know, when there was the debate about what was happening to Portsmouth. I was assured there was quite a large program of re engining the mine hunters. Perhaps they won't be re-engined now.
4: You keep you keep as many MC MCMVs as you can. I've driven one that was thirty-five years old. They're rounding in the Gulf at the moment, help, helping to make sure uh, that, that you nuclear the the nuclear was Let us put one thing in in, in perspective perspective. perspective you want a ship you sit down you say that's the sort of ship you want you get it 15 years later or whatever it's going to be the most important thing to remember this is that it takes a long time to build your forces in the style that you want them in the types you want them now the important bit is things happening along the way which means you change defence spending. So when you get a big scream as, oh, there are not enough six-inch guns left in the Navy, etc., it's all part of a process which you have in a period of 20 years. That's all we are seeing at the moment.
0: Gentlemen, we'll be returning to this subject, I am sure, in the future. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Eric Grove, thank you for your time today. with Still to come, GCHQ celebrates the life of Denniston, the man who made it all happen. North Korea has tested another nuclear weapon underground. They've announced improvements in their longest range missile. The Americans have told the Japanese and the South Koreans they can buy advanced US weapons systems. But what are the Chinese saying? Professor Hazel Smith is from the Centre for Korean Studies at the University of London. Good to speak to you today, Professor. What could China do that would stop North Korea doing what they're doing?
5: Well, I think there's a lot of mythology about what China can and can't do, so it's a very good question. First, politically, they have next to no influence over the uh, regime uh, inside North Korea. North Korea's a sovereign state, uh, and it's not just the fact that it's an actual sovereign state. China has not been able to persuade North Korean governments, even since they fought with the North Koreans in the Korean War and lost, best estimates are up to a million Chinese, Even since the war ended in 1953, they've never been able to have any influence over the government, often to their extreme frustration. Uh, One of the things that happens, of course, is that people nowadays talk about the fact that China must have economic influence because 90% of North Korea's trade, imports and exports goes through China. But we have to remember that the level of trade is extremely low. North Korea is one of the poorest countries in the world, even though it's got... Uh, as we can see from their missile and nuclear development, advanced scientific and technological skills. It's still one of the poorest countries in the world. Its exports and imports are very low compared to most countries, which means that a lot of those imports and exports go to uh, for survivability for the population. So what China's done so far is it's gone along with sanctions, uh, as has Russia and the United States and France and the UK, the important permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, all of which have the veto. Uh, China's gone along with sanctions which directly sanction North Korean government exports, like mineral exports, which are directly controlled by the government. But all the sanctions legislation has had exempt from it, it's written into the legislation, anything to do with livelihood and humanitarian issues. And what China's arguing, and I think that there's quite a lot of of, of, uh, rationality in this, is that much more of a very low, much much more restriction of trade would effectively mean the end of all trade because there isn't much to start with and now we're talking about food and we're talking about basic fuel supplies of the population in the 1990s we had a, a famine a lot of it was because of there were lots of different reasons but it was it because uh, uh, the government no longer imported mm-hmm. oil didn't get support of oil that means agriculture suffers and um, we had nearly a million people died so so i think that there so, are real issues there
0: yeah and the effect of sanctions presumably in the eyes of the americans and the united nations they're suggesting that actually the north korean leader kim jong un is driven by the idea of war that he wants a war do you buy that
5: i think that's just a little bit silly and it's it's uh, a soundbite for the uh, for the media uh, we've seen strategically that the North Koreans' priorities, and they're very clear about their strategic priorities, we don't have to read the tea leaves to find them, are regime survival and what they consider as territorial defence. Mm-hmm. So their view is that the development of nuclear weapons and the development of the missile capability prevents, whether whether we think it's right or not, their view is that it prevents uh, any form of military intervention. Yeah. when we talked
0: a- when we talked about this before, Hazel, um you talked about the internal struggles within North Korea. when you talk about regime survival, the various different families that are vying. What's the state of play now, and how ha- have these tests made any difference to that? Well, the overall state of play,
5: you're right that they, there is there are major cleavages between important families in the regime, but overall what they have in common, is that they don't want to end up in the International Court of Justice and therefore they're all having common that they want to have regime survival and they all have in common, at least as far as we can see, that at the moment the their the nuclear programme protects them. So they're, they're all in favour of the nuclear programme? Uh, well, we have seen historically, I mean, I, I don't talk to them directly, hmm. and uh, I, 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 we have seen historically what I do know about is that within the elite, there has been discussion about whether a diplomatic way forward uh, would uh, uh, would 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 solve the problem. Is the one Hazel? Well, there might be if there was a a big security deal on the table, in the same way that Britain did a big security deal with I- in Ireland, or that Colombia has done with the FARC and to end the war. But it doesn't, that would mean negotiating with North Korea as it is rather than many outside would like it to be. That would mean accepting that the current North Korean regime stays in place and yeah. finding a deal with them. If that acceptance is there, it wouldn't be very difficult to get a security deal. You could have security guarantors from China, Russia, and the United States if there was a deal negotiated. But two things one is domestically, Will the United States internally be able to, uh, to to do that? And many and Donald Trump has said he sees this as appeasement. And the other, com- coming back to what we've talked about before, is that it's by no means clear these days that there is a right. uh, there is anybody within North Korea that's prepared to change direction within North Korea to look actively for some
0: form of diplomatic solution. All right. Some of Pro- the answers are not very optimistic. Professor Hazel Smith, fascinating as ever to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. FBS zip Now, have you ever heard of Alistair Denniston? Probably not, but his story is crucial to the founding of the government communications headquarters known as GCHQ. Denniston was the intelligence organisation's first leader but was largely forgotten in the history books, until now, that is. Dr Joel Greenberg is the author of a new book about him and he joins me today from GCHQ. Good to speak to you today. Um, So who was Alistair Denniston and what was so special about him?
6: Uh, well, Denniston was a World War One codebreaker, uh, and when a unified uh, uh, signal intelligence organisation was created in 1919, he was appointed as its operational director, uh, and that organisation eventually led to modern-day GCHQ.
0: He's been described as a forgotten man, but uh, you're putting that uh, hopefully behind everybody, because um, he shouldn't be so, should he? Why do you think?
6: Absolutely not. I mean, he was obviously a pioneer uh, in the field of signal intelligence. Uh, He played a key role uh, in creating a special relationship between the United States and Britain in sharing of intelligence. Uh, And he, in effect, created uh, what is now Britain's modern intelligence organization.
0: You've researched these kind of areas a lot in your writing. What fascinated you about him? (laughs)
6: Uh, well, it was the fact that he had such a long career, uh, 30 years, a career, uh, which just ended suddenly he walked away and pretty much was never heard of again, other than by, you know, there would be references to him in books, etc. But, you know, he is actually no different than many of the people who played key roles in, in this field. You know, most people don't know about them. But given his crucial importance, uh, it's I felt that that needed to be addressed.
0: He's been described as an innovator. What were his ideas?
6: Uh, Well, he really wanted people with a a wide range uh, of skills. Uh, He had no preconception of who would be good at this sort of work. Uh, He was very much into diversity. Uh, When he ended up at Bletchley Park, there was a huge number of women working there. Uh, He didn't care what backgrounds they had as long as they had the right skills uh, to do this work. And he in the early days, allowed them to innovate. He didn't impose rules on them. Uh, He allowed them to solve the many problems that they were facing uh, without too much heavy burden of administration on top of them.
0: Yes, and he identified the talented people. He was known for that, wasn't he? What kind of people did he take in that other people would not?
6: Uh, Well, he initially uh, became aware that... uh, Polish codebreakers had had success in using mathematicians, so clearly he recognized that mathematicians were very good at this work, but equally bankers were very, very good, particularly in some of the key administration roles, and they came in obviously linguists as well. Uh, Anybody that had any sort of German, particular Italian uh, language skills were useful. So he brought people from this wide range of professions, uh, helped to knit them all together and, and to create this unified signal intelligence organization
0: it's been reported uh, nowadays the kind of new ways uh, that GCHQ has tried to attract new talent what do you think they can learn from him
6: well, I think they, they have learned the lesson, and they do. I mean, it's a very diverse organization. Just walking around the organization today, tiny books, et cetera, it's a complete diverse cross-section. There seem to be as many women as men walking around. Uh, so from a gender point of view, it's, it looks to be a completely uh, equal organization. So I, I think the lessons have already been learned.
0: And what do you think the legacy of Alistair Denniston will be?
6: Uh, almost certainly the organization uh, GCHQ, which was born out of his pioneering work in
0: the 1990s, 1920s. Well, joining you uh, today is his granddaughter, Candy Connolly, who we can talk to now. Candy, what was your grandfather like? Well, unfortunately, I never met my grandfather, but through my father, he said he was the most secretive person and he hardly knew him himself. So he was very, very discreet, but very loving as well. When you, I presume you've read this new book, um, what do you think of it? I think it's an amazing book because it gives clarity to a very complex situation that he was dealing with. And when you try and read about it, there is many, many angles to understand and how they fit together. So the book is very clear and it shows his work throughout these 30 years um, and, you know, what he did. Candy Connolly thank you and Dr Joel Greenberg's book Alistair Denniston Code Breaking from Room 40 to Barclay Street and the Birth of GCHQ is out now Uh, let's talk about uh, HMS Prince of Wales officially named tomorrow Christopher yeah You could be a bit more excited. Well, I
4: tell you what, with all this stuff about gloomy stuff about cuts and things we've been having, can you imagine the commodore just be about ten minutes to go before the naming, Mm. and he said, "We have got the uh, the champagne ready, have we?" And there's a silence in the wardroom, and they have a whip round and send send a junior acting probationary sub lieutenant round to oldies. To get the cheapest, but the finest they can get, shake it up a bit. Are you you straying
0: into dramatic, creative territory here?
4: Oh yes, not half. I can see a new play coming on here. Not half, not (laughs) half. Yeah, the launching. Yes, Mm -hmm. it comes out next year.
0: Remind reminders us when the sister ship to H M S Queen Elizabeth will be operational? Not
4: until the twenties. I mean, it's going to be sort of two years after the, the after Elizabeth. But they won't operate together. You can't do that with two big ships like that. Just imagine where will you get all the the manpower, where do we get all the ship's companies for, for, for two lots? Where do we get the destroyer escorts, the frigate escorts, the submarine escorts you need? They're not meant to do that. So mm-hmm. when, when this one comes on stream, if you like, uh, what will happen, the Elizabeth will go in for about two years, at very least three years, for, for a complete refit. But I tell you one thing, I do like the idea of the Prince of Wales putting uh, to sea eventually and being commissioned. When a ship in the Royal Navy is recommissioned, it quite often has an old name a name that we've had before, like the Mm. Sheffield or the uh, Mm. Ark Royal. They then go along to the silver vaults in the defence ministry, the old Admiralty silver vaults, and they get all the silver from the last ship and they bring it out and they put it on the table and that's ours. We've reclaimed the silver from our last ship. The
0: most important thing in your book, probably. It was
4: the most important thing, but i tell you one thing about the uh, Prince of Wales. She was really smashed up by the Japanese in World Ooh. War II, so that's not such a good Let, sign. Let's,
0: let's leave it there for let's this week. Let's leave it
4: on the cheap carpet from Aldi, <laughs> shall we?
0: Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Sitrep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for Sitrep. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye.
3: the best of british news sport and entertainment for the british
0: forces overseas this is bfbs radio 2.